Please take out your Bibles this morning and be turning to the Gospel according to John, chapter 17. Gospel according to John, chapter 17. It had been a, a long, difficult few weeks. Jesus had steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem according to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. It had indeed been a very long journey and it was nearing its end. It was a journey that had begun in eternity long before the foundation of the world according to Ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. It was a journey that would include the cross of Calvary, the head and hordes of hell, and eventually the return to his heavenly father and home. And so with the long dark shadow, the horrific shadow of the cross looming over him, Jesus continued on his journey to carry out his Father's will. Along that journey, he continually confronted and confounded the religious errorists of his day with the unending and unbending truth of the word of the living God, Matthew chapters 21 through 26. And then came that night, that final night with his disciples before he was crucified. Final night with his disciples before his betrayal and the events of what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. And it is to that evening that the Apostle John devotes five chapters in John chapters 13 through 17. It was an evening in that upper room that ended with prayer just before Jesus went to the garden to pray some more, just before his being bound and arrested, tried, beaten, scourged, crucified, finally seeing his painful journey to pay the price for yours and my sins come to an end. It was in that prayer in John 17 that Jesus, first off, prayed for himself, verses 1 through 5. It was then that he prayed for his apostles, verses 6 through 19. Then Jesus prayed for you and me, beginning at verse 20. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. In the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Jesus continued, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Here's the verse that always gets me when I read this text. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. That always just makes my just kind of, you know, one of those verses that kind of makes your, your back, just sends shivers up your spine. He knew everything that was about to come upon him. He went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And, and he asked them again, saying, Who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? It's like he's saying, Peter, Peter, you out of your mind? What are you doing? Don't you understand? I've got to continue and finish this journey, carry out my father's will. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They bound the hands of Jesus in the very garden where he prayed. After enduring a night that even many of us who have watched the movie The Passion still, surely, cannot even begin to truly imagine. Mark chapter 15 picks up the next morning with Jesus our Lord once again being bound. Mark 15 and verse 1. Mark 15 and verse 1 says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate, who later on we see in verse 15, delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. As I said earlier, even those who have seen the passion, it is still for those people utterly incomprehensible what God the Creator in mortal flesh went through to take care of your sin and my sin. We just can't get our heads around that, not fully. 
all the things they did to that man after they bound his hands and he was taken. I know of Christians, solid Christians, who still can't watch that movie. The text very simply and shortly says he was scourged, he was crucified, without going into any great detail, but the physical horrors are just incomprehensible. Our hearts and our minds just recoil away from that. They, they recoil as we explore the events of that night. Mark 15, in fact, continuing from about verse 16 on, says, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium and they called together the whole garrison. Whole garrison. They clothed him with purple, twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They struck him on the head with a reed, spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshiped him. They were mocking that man. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him. Probably with all that matted blood and just ripped it. Put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a certain man, Siren, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. They brought him to a place called Gotha, which is translated place of the skull. They gave him wine mingled with murder drink, but he didn't take it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. It was the third hour and they crucified him. The inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says he was numbered with the transgressors. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes that he saved others. Himself he can't save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross and we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. I got news for you, Mr. Centurion. Not only was this man the son of God, this man still is the son of God. He will always be the son of God and make no mistake about it, you will see him again, Mr. Centurion. You will see him again as the lion the tribe of Judah. But also know this, despite what you did to him, Mr. Centurion, he prayed for you. Said you don't know what you're doing and ask God's forgiveness for you. That's 
who this man was. But the point for us this morning, and the, the reason I take time to read all of that text, is because as I read about how they beat him and they brutalized him, and they scourged him, and they punished him, and they tortured him, and they crucified him for the sins we have committed, as, as we look through that, as we think of those things, as, as we bore in on that, we experience a range of emotions and responses. Everything from horror to anger to sickness. Maybe it makes some of us sick to our stomach, and well, it should. To sadness. All of these different things, maybe even a seething desire, maybe even, even in our humanity, this, this seething desire wells up inside of us to see those who would do such a thing to our Lord brought to justice. However, however, just like King David, when he was confronted by the prophet Samuel in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 6, we need to be very careful. Because while we might be incensed or outraged at every utterly horrible and sickening thing that they did to Jesus, everything they did to him once they, once they bound the hands of Jesus, you and I can be just as guilty of binding the hands of Jesus as they were. You and I can bind the hands of Jesus every bit as effectively as they did. And so this morning with the time that we have left, I'm gonna look at just two ways in which you and I can be guilty of binding the hands of Jesus, of rendering Jesus ineffective in our lives. And then, we're going to look at another couple of three next week, this two-part series, Binding the Hands of Jesus. The first way that many millions of people, maybe even some in this room, maybe some at home watching the live stream, maybe a whole bunch that will watch it later, are guilty or can be guilty of binding the hands of Jesus is when they refuse to obey the gospel. People bind the hands of Jesus when they refuse to obey the gospel and be baptized into Christ specifically for the forgiveness of their sins as scripture demands. Acts 2, 38, 22, 16, Galatians 3, 26, and 7, and etc. Listen. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has been calling out from the pages of Scripture for the last 2,000 years or so and continues to call out, to cry out from the Scriptures this very day, pleading with people everywhere 
to take advantage of all his suffering that we just read about, all the stuff that he went through in order to pay the price for their sins and provide them with a way so that they don't have to pay that price. Jesus has been crying out for the scriptures, from the scriptures for 2,000 years, saying, look, I've paid the price. You need to take advantage of what I have done for you. I went through all of this for you. I love you. I want you in heaven. You can't face the wrath of God by yourself. You can't handle it because it's eternity in hell. Jesus did not, and Jesus does not, want any of us to have to pay the horrible price for our sins that God's righteous justice demands. As awful, as horrible as his agony was that night with everything they put him through, as terrible as that was, as terrible as it was to be separated from his father for the only time in all eternity, as terrible as that was, Jesus understands how terrible the price is going to be for those souls that spend eternity in hell paying for their sins. He knows how horrible that's going to be on them. For those people who reject his invitation, who tie his hands to helping them by their obedience to the gospel. Let me give you an illustration. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 22, please. I want to give you an illustration. It's an illustration Jesus used as we talk about this. Matthew 22, beginning verse 1, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing. Is that what we just said? Jesus has been crying out. God has been crying out from the scriptures for everybody to be a part of this, this wedding feast, to be a part of this eternity in heaven, to be a part of all of that. But these people were not willing. This is exactly what we're talking about. It doesn't say they weren't able. It says they weren't willing. Hmm. Verse 4, again he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Sounds like a song we sing, right? Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. Went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. They made light of it. Do people make light of Jesus' call today? You ever try to teach somebody the gospel, tell them what they need to do, and they've made light of it? Well, it's just old wives' tales, it's this, it's that, you know, Bibles written all those years ago, blah, 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 right? Just kind of blow it off and make light of it. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. The wrath of God... Don't, don't miss this in those verses. The wrath of God upon those people who rejected his invitation was absolutely brutal. Rightfully so. He destroyed them and burned up their city. But then we'd go on to, to read some of the rest of this and, and we would find out that there were those who, who were trying to get on their own terms 
trying to get in on their own terms instead of on his, and that didn't get them very far either. Verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and a wedding hall was filled with guests. Brief stop right there. The wedding hall was filled with guests. The same way a church building can be filled with people. But sitting in a wedding hall, as we're about to see, or sitting in a church building, or listening to the live stream on the internet, does not make a person any more of a Christian than standing on the star during a guided tour of AT&T Stadium makes a person a professional football player. It don't. As we're about to see. Verses 11 and 12. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. See, the man wasn't properly clothed. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Huh. He was speechless. Did you get that? You see, for those who show up without the proper clothing on Judgment Day, there will be no excuses accepted. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For those without the proper covering or clothing on come judgment day, there will be no excuses accepted. There will be no defense that will save you. A person is not going to be able to say come judgment day, after God has cried out from the scriptures, after Jesus has cried out from the scriptures, told us what we need to do to be saved, nobody's going to be able to stand before God judgment day and say, well, I thought, doesn't matter what you think. Well, I didn't think that, okay, ain't gonna matter. This man was speechless, that's the point. He had no excuse. There was nothing he could say to the king. And, and, and a person's not gonna be able to stand before God on that day who's not properly clothed in Christ Jesus, who hasn't been baptized into Christ and, and clothe themselves with Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, a person's not going to be able to stand there that day and say, well, well, our preacher said that all I had to do was this. I didn't know I had to be baptized. You know what? God's been saying it for 2,000 years. Who are you listening to? There will be no self-justification. There will be no speech. There will be no reasoning for not obeying the gospel and being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is where we are by faith, clothed with Christ. Again, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. That is where we get our robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7 and verse 14. It is where we enter into and are saved by Christ, Romans 6, 1 through 5. Just like those of Noah's day had to enter into the ark in order to be saved, we need to enter into Christ the same way, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Obeying the gospel, being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins is where, according to Acts 2.38, we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which proves that we belong 
to him. The Holy Spirit, which is our guaranteed confirmation of our eternal reservation, that we have accepted his invitation to a place at his celebration. That is what the scripture says. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Couldn't be a lot clearer, could it? Our guaranteed confirmation of our eternal reservation that we have accepted his invitation to a place at his celebration. On the other hand, we continue on in Matthew 22 and we look at what happened to those who sought to get in some other way and had not humbly, humbly, in humble faith and obedience, accepted and responded to his invitation by being baptized into Christ or not being clothed properly, clothed with Christ. Those who refused his invitation to do so and rejected his son's gift and offer. Look with me in verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness and there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. He thought he was fine. But when he came before the king that day, he didn't have on the right spiritual attire. For many are called, but few are chosen. Been a lot of consternation over this verse and others and what some would call predestination, but this is not a difficult verse to understand at all, really. We are called, all of us are called by the gospel when we hear it according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. That's where we're called. When you hear the gospel, that's where you're called. Okay? Scripture says that. But the choice is still ours as to whether or not we join the chosen group by obedience to that gospel. We're not predestined before we're born. Nothing we can do about it. That's all man-made false doctrine. We have the choice to join the chosen or not, to join the elect of God or not, when we are called by the gospel, when we hear the gospel taught, and then we decide whether or not to obey it, and it's really just that simple. But when one rejects God's invitation to salvation by not properly responding. When one resists and rejects God's gift of forgiveness by refusing to obey the gospel and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They have absolutely bound the hands of Jesus 
insofar as helping them is concerned. There is absolutely no way, don't miss this, there is no way that that person who rejects that offer, there is absolutely no way that they are going to receive any benefits from what Jesus did for them. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, God gave his only begotten son. Yes, God loves us that much. Yes, he went through all of that for us. But to the person who will not accept that gift, the gift doesn't do them any good. It's all pointless. Everything that Jesus went through is pointless. His hands are tied as far as helping that person who won't accept the gift. His hands are totally tied when it comes to saving that person and they are the ones who tied them. You know, some parents, from the day they find out that well, I mean, from the day they find out that they're going to be parents, they find out that they're going to have a baby. Some, some parents at that point begin going, wow, we have to start saving for our child's college education. And so they start putting money away and they, they want this, you know, when the kid turns 18 and graduates, they want this big fund and, and they invest and they do whatever they need to do even before the baby's born because they want this child to have this college education. And they sacrifice, and they, they go through all this work and effort and pre-planning, and, and they do all this stuff. But what happens, that kid gets in high school, decides, I ain't going to school anymore, and drops out. They've wasted everything their parents wanted to do for them. Everything their parents have tried to do for them is, is wasted. If that child drops out of high school and just flat out refuses, to take full advantage of what the parents have provided at great cost and is, is right there for them, for the taking. Doesn't do them any good. All that sacrifice is wasted. There are also certain conditions that have to be met if you're going to college, right? You need a certain GPA. Certainly there are tuition requirements. There are graduation requirements. There are a lot of different conditions that need to be met if you're going to college. I mean, if you aren't paying your tuition and you don't have a scholarship, you aren't going. If you don't have a certain GPA, you probably aren't going either. And you see, salvation is the same way. There's certain requirements that must be met, certain terms and conditions which have to be met. And the Bible is crystal clear that those who do not obey the gospel by being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins have not met those divine requirements, in fact, stating that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. It couldn't be any clearer. We look at that and we say, man, that's strong language. Yeah, it is. After what Jesus Christ went through for people and they're going to reject that and basically slap him in the face and tell him it ain't good enough? Yeah, this language probably ain't strong enough. I'm not finding fault with God. Please do not think I'm being irreverent because that's not my intention. Why such strong language and why such harsh punishment inflicted on those who would tie Jesus' hands as far as benefiting them by not obeying the gospel. Well, think about it. 
Remember Acts 2 and verse 37? Peter's preached the first gospel sermon, and, and when these people heard what Peter had had to say, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, what are we going to do? Why did they say that? Think about it. Why did they say I'll tell you why they said it. Because they realized, they realized exactly what Peter told them. You crucified God's son. That's why. Okay? They understood they were responsible for putting Christ on the cross. And they understood that as a result, that they were going to have to face and experience the all-out, full-bore, eternal wrath of Almighty God for what they had done to his only begotten son. They understood that. Every ounce of pain, every drop of blood, every bit of hurt that he had been forced to endure at their hands, plus the penalty for every other sin they'd ever committed on top of that, they were going to have to face God's wrath for. It was all going to be repaid and returned back on their heads by the divine wrath, by the divine justice, by the divine judgment How'd, of Almighty God. How'd you like to be in their shoes? You want to face God with, with the blood of his son on your hands? And then when he prays for your forgiveness and he provides the means for your forgiveness, say, now that ain't good enough. Peter told them that they'd put Jesus on that cross, Acts 2, 22, and 23. And now they understood that on the day of Pentecost, they understood they were going to have to pay for that. But here's the thing. Your sin and my sin was every inch and iota is responsible for putting him on that cross as their sin. You see, we're going to face God if, if we don't obey the gospel, if we don't accept that, that gift, that offer, that invitation to be properly clothed with Christ, like 3,000 of them did on the day of Pentecost, if we don't accept that, and it was our sin who, who, who held him there as much as theirs, then the hands of Jesus are bound for us and to us because the hands of Jesus have been bound by us. We've tied his hands as far as helping us goes. We might as well have showed up in the garden that night, tied the knots because we have just as surely tied his hands to helping us if we refuse his help and his forgiveness. The second way we bind the hands of Jesus is by refusing to be transformed once we have obeyed the gospel, Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
Listen, we really undermine our eternal salvation when we do not pursue full transformation. Turn to me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We really undermine, we really tie Jesus' hands to helping us when we refuse to pursue full transformation. Ephesians 4, look at verses 17 and following. Look what the Apostle Paul writes to our brethren in Ephesus in the first century. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Yeah, you can get baptized, but if you're not willing for whatever reason if you're not willing to go forward from there and be transformed, you can't just get baptized and say, I've been baptized. Big deal. If you're not willing to be transformed, then you're binding the hands of Jesus just as surely as they did in the garden that night. He can't help you. You've tied his hands. This is a divine transformation which only occurs when we empty ourselves of ourselves so that we can be filled up with Jesus, which brothers Kirk and Eric did such a wonderful job of presenting to us in Wednesday, this past Wednesday evening. It is a transformation that takes a lifetime to accomplish. And it only occurs when we determine to consistently study the word, meditate upon it, and devote ourselves to doing it. Listen, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the two builders, one on the solid rock, one on the sand. Do you know what both of those had in common? They both heard the word. The one who built the house on the sand heard the word and didn't do it. The one who built the house on the rock heard the word and they did it. It wasn't that one group heard it and one group didn't. They both heard it. The difference was in who did it. And so what we need to do, if we're not going to tie Jesus' hands to helping us, we need to continually study and meditate upon the word and devote ourselves to doing it. Because if not, we can't be transformed. If we don't do that, then Jesus' hands are tied by us when it comes to helping us thrive and grow and survive all the way to the finish line, this race that we started at our baptism. You know, as a preacher, over the years, I've seen people leave the church. You have too. Don't have to be a preacher to see that, but as a preacher, I've seen people leave the church. They leave the church, they leave the Lord. Now, they don't think they leave the Lord when they leave the church, but let's face it, he is the head of the body, right? Jesus is the head, the body is the church. The head stays with the body, right? So when people leave the church, they say, well, I don't need the church, I just need Jesus. No, it doesn't work that way because Jesus, the head, 
is connected to Jesus the body, which is the church. So you leave the church, you leave Jesus. They don't believe that, but that's biblical. Okay, having said that, people leave the church, they leave the Lord, they leave his word, they stop studying his word, and they go out and they seek to live their lives without the church, without the word, without their God. And then, when their lives fall apart, and they will, you count on it. You can't, you can't do this without God. When their lives fall apart, they're in an abysmal mess, the worst possible thing befalls them. You know what they usually will say? Where's God? What's God doing? How could God let this happen? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but you've probably known somebody who's done something similar to that. How could God let this happen? Where is he? I'll tell you exactly where God is. For those who have left the church and or will one day leave it, leave the Lord, leave his word behind, try to go live your life on your own, everything falls apart, and then you cry out, where is God? I'll tell you exactly where God is. God's the same place God's always been. God's right there in his church. Same place he's been for the past two months, past two years, in the past two millennia. Right there in his church. Crying out to you from his word. Desperately trying to get your attention. Desperately trying. He's been trying. Ever since you left the church. He has been trying to get your attention. To give you the strength to face what he already knew was coming. God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to have to face some of life, any of life by yourself. He doesn't want you to have to go through that struggle by yourself. And so he cries out from scripture. He wants you here, he wants you studying, he wants you learning, he wants you being strengthened, he wants you growing so that you don't have to have so much pain in your life when bad things happen. You see, the question for such folks is not when their world falls apart, where is God? The question is, where were you when God was crying out to try to give you the strength to get through what you're going through now? Where were you? Because God ain't moved. The question is not, what is God doing, but what were you doing when the word of God was being presented that could have given you the strength and the peace that you needed in the midst of your pain and suffering? That's the question. What were you doing when you should have been studying and meditating on the word of God so that you could be transformed and strengthened by the will of God so that you now could be resting in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Hey, the question is not, how did God let this happen? The question is, how could you? I don't mean to sound harsh, I really don't. But Jesus' power to transform our lives is found in the word. John 6, verse 63. The words that I give you are spirit and life. Jesus' power to transform our lives, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is found in the word. Therefore, those who do not devote themselves to the word of God, to studying it, meditating on it, being being there every time it is being taught, those people really do find the hands of Jesus. 
as far as helping them is concerned. They've, they've tied his hands. He can't help them. His hands are tied to them. And they're the ones who've tied him. What a crying shame that so many people today still bind the hands of Jesus. They bind the hands of Jesus by blocking out or not devoting themselves to studying and obeying his teaching, rendering him, the very son of the living God, totally helpless to help them, both here and now as well as on day of judgment itself. Jesus is not going to be able to help those people. His hands are tied to them. And they're the ones who tied them. Truly, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 and verse 31, New American Standard Version says it's a terrifying thing. This morning, if you are guilty of binding the hands of Jesus in either of the two ways that we have talked about, rendering him helpless to help you, because let's face it, he's not going to go against his father's will. Was Jesus going to go against his father's will in the garden? No, not my will, but thine be done. He was going to see that journey all the way through to the end, right? And he did. He wasn't going to stop short of obedience. And Jesus is not going to allow us to stop short of obedience either. God's word is what's going to judge us on the last day, John 12, 48, and all of those who have not obeyed the gospel have not had their sins washed away, and we've already read what's going to happen to them. So if you're here this morning and you have bound his hands by either not obeying the gospel and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you have become a Christian, but you just have refused to grow, again, rendering him somewhat powerless to help you, binding his hands. This morning you can obey the gospel. Or you can come forward and ask for the prayers of the church that you'll be stronger. Those of you that are listening at home, all you need to do is send us a note. Kirk, it'll pop right up there. I need the prayers of the church. I need to be stronger or I need to be baptized. You can get a hold of any of us today. We'd be glad to help you with that. But here's the thing. If you've not devoted yourself to the study of his word and the renewing of your mind the way that you had ought to, the only alternative you have in either one of those two cases, the only alternative you have is to leave Jesus bound so that he can't help you with his blood on your hands and your sin on your soul when you face God on judgment day. this is yours, figuratively speaking, why don't you come forward right now as we stand and sing and unbind and untie Jesus so that 
He can help you. Right now as we stand and sing.